Hello, and welcome to the Global Insight from Control Risks, the Global Specialist Risk Consultancy. I'm Claudine Fry. And I'm Charles Hecker. And this is the podcast where we try to explain what's going on in the world and what it means for business. Chuck, I just found out that I've been successful in bidding for tickets to the final of the UEFA Women's Euros, which is taking place at Wembley in London at the end of July. Claudine, score. That is a major get. (laughs) Congratulations. You are going to have the best time. It's just wonderful that sports events are happening again. You know, when I first moved here, one of the most interesting things that I learned about the differences between American English and British English is that here in the UK, sporting events are referred to as fixtures. And I thought initially that that was quite an unusual turn of phrase. And then I realized with a bit of time how apt that is because sporting events really are a fixture in our lives, either because we play them or because we watch them or whether we're lucky enough to get tickets to them, are really a fixture in our lives. We look forward to them. We get upset when the wrong team wins or loses. And generally speaking, it's something that brings us all together and we enjoy. And we've been helping to make those fixtures happen, even in the context of the pandemic over the past couple of years. I'd say that's one of the most rewarding aspects of the COVID monitoring work that we've been doing, Chuck, us and many of our colleagues around the world. We're heading into the Beijing Olympics. We've just congratulated the winners of the Australian Open. And later this year, we will be glued to the World Cup in Qatar. Each of those events has showcased in sharp relief the entire spectrum of risks that take place both on the field and all around it. Politics has been involved in sport for centuries. Everything back to sort of the professionalisation of, of football in the UK back in sort of the 1880s, through to suffragette movement impacting horse racing in the early 1900s, to the Moscow and LA Olympics boycotts in the 80s. It's nothing new, but I think the world of sport is, is changing, sort of living with emerging risks such as COVID. Dan Heal, partner and head of sports and major events. The Olympics is a great example, a very timely example of how politics and geopolitics is is so closely linked with business now and has been really for almost the past 10 years in this current administration. Kent Kettle, partner, head of our business in China and North Asia. Here in the Middle East, sports and politics have never been too far apart over the past few years. And as regional economies diversify away from oil and gas, Sport and tourism are seen as an important part of that transition and filling the gap. James Lurie, a director and head of our social compliance consulting business in EMEA. Dan, I think it's been really interesting to see how sports event organisers have actually demonstrated incredible resilience in the context of the pandemic over the couple of years. And they've actually been at the forefront, haven't they, of trying to work out how to bring things back to life after everything shut down in, in the early days of 2020. Yeah, definitely, Claudine. It's it's been fascinating how perhaps more mature sports or more mature event organisers perhaps haven't reacted as quickly or as well as they could have done two years, 18 months ago, compared to a smaller or sort of tier two, if you like, sports or events that have really shone through and, and, and really driven that home and won't name particular names, but they, yeah, there's certainly high profile events, sports events that we've seen that haven't gone so well, but others others have. 
And again, back to the impact on our personal lives. Again, you might not be a lover of, of sport week in, week out, but actually, I think there's probably been no higher profile sector or industry that's been in our gaze over the last two years than, than sport and major events. Yeah, I mean, when there wasn't much else to do, being able to still watch a football match or watch all the incredible elite athletes in Tokyo last year was was a much appreciated distraction. It, it really was and is. I think it's interesting, Claudine, to look at the timelines and we're talking about major sports events. Something like Beijing Winter Olympics was awarded in 2015, the Qatar FIFA World Cup later this year was awarded in 2010. How does an organising committee or how does a, a stakeholder involved in an event sort of look at risk and manage risk. And I don't think COVID-19 or major pandemic would have been on many people's risk register back in 2010 or 2015. It's a really different world that we live in now compared to 12, seven years ago. In terms of geopolitics, the lag period between the awarding of an Olympic Games and the execution of the Olympic Games is perhaps no more relevant than how close geopolitics and the Beijing Games are intertwined. Kent, how are you making sense of this for the business community in and around the Beijing Winter Olympics? I've been in China since the mid-80s, and I've never seen the impact of politics on really day-to-day business operations. And certainly anyone who is sponsoring the Olympics, any brand names that are there, there have been a number of situations here over the last year and a half of Chinese netizens who have gotten upset because certain foreign brands have been perceived as treating China differently. Their quality of ingredients, their customer service approach, their criticism of certain Chinese geopolitical things. It's just heightened so much. And when the games were awarded, versus now, it wasn't that way, you know, in 2015. And so now, you know, as companies commit to, you know, really becoming public at this time, it adds a dynamic that is certainly not welcome and is certainly very, very challenging. Kent, once these games are over, what are companies meant to remember? Because as sure as night follows day, something, political or otherwise, is going to interrupt the next major sporting event. Yeah, and I think what everybody is focused on and probably even more concerned about than the Olympics itself here in China is COVID, is the government's approach to COVID, the zero COVID approach that they're taking. And everybody's wondering, you know, what is the off-ramp to that? And the next major event, not a sporting event, the next major event here in China is the November political meetings that are very critical in the political calendar. And what we're all understanding is that is that the response to COVID, and a matter of fact, response to businesses is on a political calendar. It's a political response. It's not a scientific response, not necessarily a business response. It is a political response. And the the party has made no bones about that. They're not trying to hide the fact. And so a lot of what we are working with clients to understand is what is the political impact of whatever is happening at the moment? The Olympics, COVID, the regulatory pressure, things like that. What is the potential impact to their business? And frankly, everyone is impacted by this. It's been quite challenging to work with clients to go through that. They're very excited about the investment opportunities in China, but they do understand that, that there are political and regulatory headwinds that they, they really do have to manage. The other big event coming up later this year, on the sports front at least, is the World Cup scheduled to be underway finally in Qatar after many, many years of somewhat heated build up. You're an expert on sustainability, James, and and helping clients manage the risks associated with those issues. What are you seeing from a sustainability perspective as we head towards the World Cup? So whether in hosting the Formula One, the purchasing of European cycling and football teams, or the 2022 Football World Cup itself, 
the international spotlight has been glaring intensely on social sustainability issues in the Middle East. And of course, this light shines not only on the host nations themselves, but the sponsors, brands, broadcasters, hospitality, and individual athletes. In fact, if you look at the orbit around an event like the World Cup or Olympics, it's vast and it, it touches most businesses operating in host regions, either directly or indirectly. What have you seen in terms of a response to those pressures? So if I park the environmental factors of sustainability right now, and and we look at the pressure around social sustainability facing brands, this started way back, as Dan said, when the World Cup was announced. So campaign groups have long cited human rights concerns and have targeted FIFA sponsors, many of whom were caught off guard by the risks to the reputation. And we've seen a lot of investor pressure too. And in fact, in 2019, Norway's sovereign wealth fund divested in 66 million pound stake in G4S, the security provider, over the treatment of workers in Qatar. International brands as well operating in Doha have faced a lot of pressure from NGOs and trade unions on worker rights concerns. And we even saw Liverpool FC declining to stay at the five-star Kempinski Hotel after its own due diligence flagged concerns over worker treatment. So there's been a lot of growing pressures. I suppose most of that is now coming from football associations themselves, particularly those from domestic clubs or fan groups. And the most high profile of these has been in Germany, Denmark and Norway, where there's quite a bit of pressure to withdraw national teams from Doha right now over concerns about worker rights. So I think it's fair to say that the World Cup has been a lightning rod for social sustainability. But let's not forget that it's also been a huge catalyst for societal change in Qatar, by drawing attention to these issues and ushering in major reforms of the labour law and progress on labour rights more broadly. And these changes have been welcomed by trade unions and UN agencies in particular. And while there's clearly more work to do to carry this momentum through to the legacy of the event, there's no doubt the impact that the World Cup has already had. And that's been the same for businesses in the World Cup orbit, and many of whom have increased their due diligence and risk management activities. They've reviewed business relationships and engaged with their suppliers in a closer way than than ever before. In a world where sporting organisations have never been under more pressure from a commercial perspective, and we're talking about survivability here, as in sort of looking at new markets, looking at new opportunities around the world, whatever it may be, they're living in a world where they're, they're having to take steps that they wouldn't have taken two or three years ago in a very different world, both from a sort of reputational, ethical perspective, having to go into new projects, new markets, or whatever it may be, at a time when they, they need to make more money. And that's the simple fact. They're, yes, they want to do the right thing. And they have, in some cases, a national association will have the biggest stakeholder group of any organization in the world. They could have 60 million stakeholders from a country support perspective that all want to say about what that individual organization is doing. So it's just a fascinating time and the push and pull of doing the right thing, but making money. And I've simplified it there, but I think it's a really good way of looking at it. We'll come back to our conversation in just a moment, but if you'd like to learn more about identifying and managing the risks associated with sporting and major events, look for Dan and James's profiles in the podcast notes. And to learn more about how we can work with your organization to achieve sustainability goals, get in touch with James Lurie by visiting his bio, which you can find in the podcast notes, or go to the website, controlrisks.com. Dan, when you think about the level of granularity that Kent and James have just provided in the regions that they're talking about, let's pull back a little bit and think about the broader 
environment. How do we choose what to worry about? When you hear that a football team is avoiding a certain hotel because of practices there that they've discovered, where are the red lines? I think this discussion has changed over the last couple of years, not just pandemic linked, but over the last five or 10 years, as the increase in interest and financial investment externally predominantly has come into the world and business of sports, it's changed the dialogue. You've got major private equity looking to invest and having invested into sports, into leagues, into teams who are starting to ask the questions that other industries and sectors have been asking for, for a number of decades. I think it's too easy at times to, to say that business and world of sports decades behind other industries such as financial service and telco. But what we're seeing with this increased external investment is that sports organisations across the board are, are being dragged almost. There's some very mature, some very forward thinking federations and leagues and teams. But a lot of organisations are being dragged into this new world of governance compliance, of which human rights, sustainability are very much a core part. And those organisations that are looking at this as a positive game changer for them, excuse the pun, are very much the ones that are going to be at the forefront in the coming years and decades. Dan, just reflecting on a point you made about the fact that some of the lesser known sports organisations have actually been better at demonstrating resilience and getting going again during the pandemic. This also suggests that there's some quite exciting opportunities. I'm interested in your take on what has made them more effectively able to adapt and stay functional and on the front foot. Whatever that is, it's something that actually makes them quite attractive opportunities for sponsors who want to stay involved in sports but want to manage their exposure to risk. Definitely. And I think if you combine that with the potential growth in an individual sport, whether it be geographically, demographically, external investment, private equity are looking at where the opportunity is. Obviously, they're not in it for their love of sports, where historically a chairperson of a football team, a soccer team or a rugby team perhaps is, is in it because he or she's from that hometown. They've been involved in it for decades. External investment, private equity, look at it from a business angle and actually where you've got a, a smaller, nimble, more resilient, forward-looking board or directorship of a particular sport or league, that's so much more attractive than a sport that's sort of been involved in perhaps negative press over the last few decades that's ran by former athletes or former players. It's probably the smaller sports, if you like, that are the really attracting this investment and, and attention at the moment. Can I jump in with a comment on the new risks that sport kind of brings up and to kind of expand it broader to brand risk, because I think this is kind of what we're talking about is our brand associating with another brand or associating with an event and what risks come from that. And at least here in China, it's been really interesting. We do a lot of work with consumer products companies here. And consumer products companies look at their brand as a marketer. They don't look at it necessarily naturally as a risk manager. So when they are monitoring you know, sentiment monitoring, consumer sentiment monitoring, they're trying to find out how well their brand message is landing. Do they believe what we say about our quality, about our premium position? Do they believe that? They're not monitoring for potential risks out there. And in the last nine months, we've been helping companies look at risks to their brands that is associated with just being in the market, but associated with, with uh, cooperating with certain individuals, certain companies, certain key opinion leaders, certain events, and helping them understand what the risks are to their current brand. And we're using a really cool system of data analytics to predict when they might get into trouble. 
We're very often called in when someone has a huge brand issue and we're called in to manage a crisis. And during that, we go back and rebuild kind of what happened up to that point. We decided that, hey, why don't we just start from the beginning and kind of monitor it on a, on a real-time basis? And when we start to see something tick up, we jump on it. It's very different from monitoring how consumers are responding positively to your brand message. This is the, the risks out there. If you're positioning yourself in quality, they could criticize you for your quality. If you're a foreign brand, they could criticize you for being a foreign brand and not being sensitive to local things. So I think the whole concept of brand risk is something that the world of sport and large events is really bringing to the fore right now, particularly with the prevalence of social media and how popular it is for consumers to use it. I'm just really keen to get your personal feel, really, compared to 2008 Summer Olympics. Obviously, very, very different world like we discussed. But how's the general feeling in in Beijing around hosting another major sports event post-2008? Certainly, the COVID situation kind of colors everything. And I think the nervousness around that and, you know, literally creating a bubble around, you know, the Winter Olympics in a snow globe is a very interesting approach. I think 2008, China was in a very different place geopolitically as well. If you look at the Olympics in 2008 and the Shanghai Expo in 2010, we're really China's kind of coming out party to the rest of the world and really demonstrating how they could just pull off two major events in pretty much a flawless way. They, they, they did just a brilliant job of both of them. And so the pressure is certainly on here to do the same thing in a much more challenging environment, but it is geopolitically a very different place. And you see the diplomatic boycott, you see all these other things that are making it just a lot more spiky and, and sensitive. So it still is China looking at themselves on the global stage, but the conditions are quite a bit different than they were back in 2008. James, one of the elements of brand value is how green a brand is. James, can you sort of pull that strand through some of what Kent was just talking about and how that also comes to play in some of your work on sustainability in the Gulf region and beyond? Yeah, I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned both from how sports is approaching sustainability and also how companies themselves have approached sustainability. It's important to look at what the fundamental differences are with sports as a sector, first of all. And unlike any other sector, you know, we look to sports and individual athletes as role models to represent the best in us. In a way, I think that we don't have any other brand or business. And, and sport really does reflect societal values and sustainability issues such as gender equality, social justice, or freedom of expression, climate change, and others. The other distinction I would draw is that Sports and sporting events have long had a history of positive social impact. And whether that's through community regeneration or societal change, such as we've seen in Doha with the change in the labor law, a positive legacy in sports is often the dominant factor in sustainability, probably in a way that it's not for any other sectors or businesses. And when we think of mega events, we think about how they throw a spotlight on a host country like Qatar or, or China. And clearly, these billion-dollar events in themselves are unique. You know, the sheer scale, the temporary nature of the event itself, the immovable deadlines, they really do create an enormous ecological and social sustainability challenge as well. And much of that, of course, comes from the vast amounts that are required to build new stadiums or infrastructure and the emissions on getting fans and travel to the event. And it's really difficult to avoid that impact, of course, even with sustainable energy sources. So that's why we see the trend of carbon offsetting, particularly as used in Tokyo and China. 
Unfortunately, climate change is really now challenging the very viability of these events like the Winter Games. And if we don't meet our Paris climate targets, for example, by the end of the century, it's thought that only one of the former 21 host cities are going to be viable to host the Winter Games again. And to illustrate that point further, you know, these Winter Games are going to be the, the first to rely on 100% artificial snow for downhill skiing and snowboarding. So when we think about brands and their association with games, we think particularly around how those businesses interact in the orbit of those games and, and how those games reflect the values of those businesses themselves and how do they associate with that. And a really good example, actually, Chuck, I saw recently was one of the biggest football clubs in the world, which is Arsenal, who are partnering with the renewable energy company Octopus to meet their sustainability goals and to promote renewables to a considerable fan base. We've done a huge amount of work with sports organisations. We're very proud of, of that work. What, what are we doing to help clients manage the risks associated with being sponsors or helping to bring sports events to life? It's around what you as an organisation can control, whether that be from a sort of reputational risk perspective, all the way through to duty of care to your administrators, your athletes and your players. There's obviously complex issues across the risk spectrum that are impacting sports events this year and beyond. But it's really about how can individual federations, teams, leagues demonstrate, one, doing the right thing, but really, I think to, to James's point before of, of being world leaders is that sport and sports people and athletes are up on a pedestal and without putting themselves too high up on that pedestal. How, how, do, how does sport drive positive change and how do organisations accept positive and dynamic risk management as a part of their success and resilience in the years ahead? I suppose it's just like any other sector in a way, isn't it? You said something earlier, Dan, which I thought was a really great way of summing it up. It's controlling what you can control. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's making informed decisions based on accurate and reliable data and information rather than gut feeling or sort of access to previous colleagues or networks. So I guess you could say that sports is primarily about winning, but it's also about playing a clean game. How do you make both of those work in the current business environment? I think there's no compromise, Chuck. Going back to that external investment business of sport hat on, there's no compromise. Yeah, I think if you want to be a, a winner in sports or in business in the long term, then clearly the clean game is the one to play and getting ahead of risks and challenges that you face, both from a sustainability perspective, but a, a broader risk perspective as well. James, thank you so much for joining us from Dubai. My pleasure. Great to be here. Dan, huge thanks for joining us on the podcast and save me a seat at Wimbledon. <laughs> as long as you can buy the pims, Chuck, we will all sit next to each other. Thank you very much indeed. Kent, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's great to, to be with you both. Thanks. That's all for this episode of The Global Insight. Stay tuned with new episodes of The Global Insight every other week by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. And be sure to check out our other podcasts as well, such as Legal and Compliance Insights, a monthly podcast that gives you a window onto the legal and compliance issues our experts are facing around the world. You can follow all of our analysis and find out how we're helping build secure, compliant, and resilient businesses by visiting controlrisks.com. The Global Insight is produced by Sam Tornio and Vicky Bufton. For me, thanks for listening and bye for now. And goodbye from me.